Welcome to the Intern Whisperer Best of 2020. The first episode we have in this compilation is going to be Andrew Weiss. And this was the first episode I ever did of the Intern Whisperer. So, enjoy. So how did you end up with that particular industry? Because you tried on a lot of different places to see what you really like. And then you're over here in this side of a strategic consultant, which I find very interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing you share more about that one. I mean, so footwear is just an interest of mine. And uh, whether it was, a, you know, as a child wanting the newest pair of shoes, whether I play the sport or not. Uh, and then finally realizing when I'm older that it's a billion dollar industry with multiple aspects of operations, business, marketing, sales, retail, and what have you, that as soon as I saw those things were at arm's length in the advertising world, uh, I did whatever I could to get my hands on it. And if I wasn't working on it as a client or a project, I was creating those types of things on the side so that whenever those opportunities came up, I could show that I was driven and passionate about this field of work. It's just something that interests me, and uh, I, I still am interested into it, interested in it today. And uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's just something I like. Yeah, I think it's a well. It's about the basketball shoes, I suppose, more than anything, or whatever the kicks are that somebody uses. But it is part of fashion. It's not indirectly just sports. It's dress. It's you know sports. It's it's everything that makes up a a person and it defines who you are a lot of how you dress. I don't know, Ian, what do you think? Oh yeah, I completely <laughs> agree. Like <laughs> a little off topic, but I just bought my first pair of Nikes today, running shoes. And oh, really? it's, it's a look that I'm going to use for exercising and also fashion. And I agree with that. I mean, being able to purchase your own shoes, whether it's me who did it in a way that was empowering because it was shoes that my dad would let me buy when I was younger. And I was like, well, I'll buy it with my money. Thank you very much. <laughs> or if it's just something that is functional or fashion related, um, it's, I don't know how to explain it, but even when I've worked on clients where the focus was on females or on product lines that include shoes and footwear that I would never wear, I still found myself gravitating towards those types of work streams and enjoyed every second of it. And, uh, you know, I, I honestly can't explain it other than the term sneakerheads or, you know, people mm -hmm. who just like shoes for whatever reason. Two things, actually. Uh, do you know The World According to Jeff Goldblum? Did you watch that show? I know of the show and I really like Jeff Goldblum, but I didn't watch any of it. But please, okay. you know, go ahead. Episode one is about the the world of shoes so i think that you would be really interested in that and that's yeah, what i mean a lot of my information yeah i like jeff goldblum talking about anything hence the show <laughs> so i definitely will look into that and I, I i appreciate the recommendation oh yeah no problem and then the where is that ian oh it's on, on disney plus okay i have that i did not know that one i'm gonna go look for it i like it. he's funny oh yeah for sure and to segue but also still beyond the topic of footwear. In 2016, you helped design a custom pair of Jordan 8s. So what was that experience like? Yeah, so that was an example of when I wasn't working on footwear as a client. So I had a coworker from a previous job that we just always talked about shoes, always bonded over footwear. He had an impressive lineup of footwear that he would wear to work and I would compliment them and vice versa. And we always talked about these 
ideas that we had about brands that we wish we worked on and what we would do if we did work on them. And that led us to just like have a relationship of brainstorming where even if we didn't work together anymore and he was an art director at another agency that we still had these types of conversations. And in 2016, uh, Michael Jordan uh, gave a speech. Uh, I believe it was a hall. I can't remember exactly what speech it was. And I, I wish I did. It may have been hall of fame speech. I'm not hundred percent sure at the moment, but his face uh, crying was almost like encapsulated in a moment of history and became a viral moment because you saw this godlike sports figure be vulnerable for a second and his it became a meme and i don't know if quite that time if the if the word meme was being used as uh commonly as it was used now and we saw this trend rising very quickly all over the internet it was being used to bring other people down in a very comedic way and we always knew we wanted to do a shoe project together and we looked at the entire line of jordan shoes and saw the jordan 8 had his face on the the tongue there's a, a like a fabric fuzzy like patch uh, on the tongue. And we decided to replace that patch, which was a, you know, the Jordan brand logo with the crying Jordan meme. Uh, we worked with uh, individuals in Chinatown to get the patch created and, you know, sewn on to the tongue, uh, created it as portfolio work because no matter what, if someone was like, oh, if you, are interested in working in footwear. If you don't have footwear experience, what else are you doing to, you know, be interested in that industry? We'd be like, boom, crying Jordan. So no matter what, at its bare minimum, it was a portfolio piece. But then we used our marketing and PR efforts to just send it to various news outlets, media outlets, blogs that we thought would be interested and just sent it to them in an email and crossed our fingers and hoped for the best. But again, at the bare minimum, it's why side projects matter. We had work for our portfolio and that was the success point. That, that is awesome. <laughs> like I, I read about that on your LinkedIn and then also doing my research, but to hear that is just amazing. Yeah, and also it was luckily something I could put on my resume. You know, it's mm -hmm. great to have stuff in your portfolio and if it does well, because it did have some traction on the internet it was also shown on tv like we were proud of it we and i put it on my resume and i uh you know i have like 20 other things that i tried to drum up with my friend sherman and other people that like should never be on anyone's portfolio or resume so it's good to get one right yeah for sure because it that's the one that like popped out to me i'm like i have to ask this story for this story. so i want to jump into something that you said so this little patch and it went on the tongue of the shoe correct seems like something that would be really, really popular and an accessory to a shoe. And did it, did it really fly? Did you have a lot of people wanting to buy it? Because it seems like oh, that. So we didn't, it wasn't for sale. And I want to, it was an art piece. And the reason that was important is uh, at the time and still at this time, uh, we are, you know, we are talking about the likeness of one of the most famous sports figures ever. And he embraced it and all he said is as long as people are doing it for art and not for consumer you know not for sale not for profit not mm. for profit thank you that um we were okay so we made a one-of-one -one art project and it did very well it, from an awareness point of view there was no money exchanged between anyone and the shoes are hidden uh somewhere uh wherever sherman had put them and um it's still just a one of one and you know 
it's not for sale and never will be. And I don't want to, you know, ever, you know, position it as anything other than a side art project. Well, wow, but it's a collector's item. Yeah, absolutely. And it had its fun moment on the internet. And it's, you know, something that he and I were very proud of, made it onto ESPN even. And Holy we look back on it very fondly, but it was just, it, it's kind of how marketing works. You know, if you strike while the iron's hot effectively, you can be part of culture. And it's really exciting as someone who has to work in that field to say that I've been part of it in some capacity. Wow, that is amazing. So I'm, I'm pretty impressed because it sounds like you've had uh, a lot of an entrepreneurial spirit here and with just about everything that you've been taking on. And I was sharing with Ian that there are some things you just can't teach. You know, either people have that like a work ethic, <laughs> you can't just teach that. You know, it, they come in with it, a hunger and a desire to be curious, to learn, to solve problems. And then there's other people that, you know, they need to be led. And there's not one that's probably better than the other, but, you know, it's important to have people that are leaders as well as people that want to follow. That work ethic, that uh, desire to make something big, it's pretty impressive what you were doing there. I mean, I would say um, it's a product of the industry as well. You know, when you're working in marketing in any capacity, it's always changing and always evolving. Yeah. And, and with social and the internet, it's evolving very, very quickly. And from a professional standpoint, or even from a consumption standpoint, your tastes evolve, your skills evolve, your job roles evolve, and your interests as well kind of intertwine between all of that. So as I said before, it's just something I was interested in. And luckily, I chose a field of work that allowed me to, you know, go deeper into those interests and find that there is a whole industry here. There's a whole footprint of culture on the internet here. And within that are certain things that as long as I continue to explore it or research it, and again, this can be based off anyone else's interests. Like footwear is, is a very interchangeable subject here because I can also have 10 other interests where I've done similar things. But when you work in marketing, especially in the ad agency world, people are just always creating and you almost get to a point where if you're not creating, you can get FOMO. And it's important that that becomes ingrained in your day-to-day -day because you're always being asked upon by brands to create more, evolve more, and you know drive more business objectives that matter. So true, so true. You've been up in New York for how long now? Um, about, I think almost exactly 10 years. So almost officially like a New Yorker, the unwritten rule is if you're here for 10 years and you weren't born here, you can call yourself one. So uh, definitely love it here. Uh, and definitely plan on being here for a while. <laughs> Are you originally from Florida, Orlando? So I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, go Jaguars, one of the few Jaguar fans in all of New York City. Um, but we stick together and uh, moved here pretty much right after college. But from uh, Atlantic Beach slash Mandarin in Jacksonville, if that means anything. But went to college at UCF uh, two hours away. It was perfect. Felt like I wasn't at home, but was almost close enough to be home whenever I needed. Yeah, it's it's a big step. I was born in Kansas and I moved to all over the U.S. You know, by the time I was 16, we had moved 21 times. So wow. we were constantly moving. It's a lot. Um, by the time our family moved to Florida, Orlando, nobody wanted to live in the snow anymore. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. I actually left. I'm not going to lie. I think I'm a little bit of the opposite. Um, I like embrace seasons and love like 
I love inclement weather and I think it's cool, but at the same time, I think that's a glass is half full approach. And I don't know if I've been, been a part of like a Kansas summer or Kansas winter, because I know New York has a reputation for it, but it may not be as bad as other places. Oh no, it's all okay. It's relevant, you know, to wherever you are. Um, I, I know that Ian, he and I were talking yesterday about the cold and I realized when I went up to New York and to Boston and I was there, I was going, oh, it's not that cold anymore. Like the jacket was unzipped. It's 21 degrees. It's just a different kind of cold down here in Orlando. Um, to me, it's definitely more chilling and it seems to stay than the, the cold that's anywhere else. It's dry. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, no, it's all relative. I, I knew what I was getting myself into when I moved here. It's not like... Uh... The weather changed and I was like, wait, no one told me about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, gotcha. Um, okay, so looking over here, what field of work have you not explored that you would like to? So I, I'm going to answer that question in two ways. I don't think I've scratched the surface of how much I want to do in footwear. So my answer would still be that, but that's a loophole answer and you deserve a separate industry. So I, I have always allowed or not I don't know how to say this I've always wished I worked more in makeup and beauty and I'll tell you why um, not because obviously I'm a consumer of it but because the consumers of it are so passionate about it in a way that is adjacent to footwear that I just feel that I could see myself enjoying the type of research and strategy that I do in that world the same way I do in footwear apparel or retail um, and I've always been indirectly involved with those types of clients but never full-time and I just find it so fascinating to see the way that plays out culturally across the internet as well next up is the second episode I did of the intern whisperer and it is with Catherine Connors my dad was a for an amateur photographer but a passionate photographer um had his own dark room and everything and so I, I i think i grew up appreciating his appreciation for for the visual image mm -hmm. when i was I, I, but i wasn't a big photographer myself for i would say for much of my life my dad showed me how to use his cameras and i liked doing it and i liked the dark room it wasn't actually until um i had my daughter and first began really feeling like I have to document this in some way. I have to capture all those moments. Like I, I'm one of those people that even when my husband and I got married, it was, you know, we didn't have a videographer. We didn't prioritize it. You know, we had friends take pictures. We didn't have, have you know, a, like we, we didn't put a premium on capturing images from our lives together. We've got lots of them, but it wasn't something that we prioritized. When I had my daughter, it became this, oh, I need, I want to capture this. And there was a bit of a transformation because it was the same time I'd started writing again, you know, personally. And I began including pictures of her, you know, with my writing. And it became another layer to the storytelling that was just really personally gratifying for me. So I've played around with, you know, with quote unquote real cameras. You know, I have a good camera that I love, but my default ever since the advent of the iPhone has been the iPhone. You know, the photographers often say that the best camera is the one that you have on you. Um, so I can't claim to have any 
real technical skill as a photographer, but I love a visual story and I love capturing that visual story. And I find myself looking for those visual stories. And I love the way that that creative journey for me just gave me a new lens on the world. I get asked a lot on social media about why I post so many pictures of my children from behind which is a question that I love because I hadn't realized that I did that until somebody asked me the question and then it kept coming up. And I realized that it was the visual story that I was so attentive to was of my children being in constant movement away from me, that they were always on this journey ahead of me, that they were always somewhere racing ahead, exploring ahead, moving ahead. And that was both a real element of our lives, right? That my children are always racing off with a different energy than I have. Uh, but also that this is, this is our journey together. I'm always and forever behind them. So I've really come to treasure those photos from behind where it's me because it's capturing my real experience of watching my children continually just walk or run away from me. Mm, it's heartbreaking too. I know that. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, it's the pathos, let's say, of that kind of visual image. It's a thing that I wouldn't be able to capture as well in words. We can say all sorts of things about the passage of time and your children grow up and leave. But in a photograph, I can capture one image of my daughter moving away into a sense that and it says everything about the parental experience. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, um, one of the things, this is always, I think, a, a telling moment of how mother-daughter relationships are. With my mom, we, it was a very, oh, she's no longer alive, but it was very um, much of a tussle. And it came out later that she said, well, she, she felt intimidated by me. And I went, well, why? She said, well, you went to college. My mother didn't. And I would have put my mother up against anybody that was a college graduate, including a PhD, because she was extremely well-read and she, she was informed and she was, you know, always curious. And I, I just, I, I never would have guessed that at all. But there's that place where she said she felt intimidated by me for that reason. And then the um, other thing about that whole mother-daughter dynamic is she felt that she had never done enough, like the bad mother, like what you were just saying. And I had told both of my parents before my mother had passed away, I said, you know, you have taught me to be strong, to be independent, to be able to figure out how to get things done. You've given me this amazing work ethic. And it's, I am the best of both of you. I am also the things that I don't like about you, but I've also learned to come to terms with them and just realize like, I think you guys are awesome. Now, my parents weren't married also. Well, you know, they got divorced later. However, it was this place where, um, yeah, you're enough and you were amazing and you were a good mom. And it was exactly what I think she, she needed to hear. And I don't think that as kids, we go back and, and tell our parents that. So that's for you, Ian. You go back and you tell your mom and your dad, like, oh my God, you know, let me tell you all of the wonderful things that you've done and how you've influenced my life. And it really does make all of the difference because you turn into this uh, place when you grow up and it's a different dynamic. And it's, does your parents still see you as a child or do they see you as a peer and that you can be friends? I'm sure you've encountered that many times in maybe your own relationships, but just sharing that. And it just came out of some of the things that you said, because 
you said that you can see the daughter going away. And that was my, my mother's fear is that she wasn't needed anymore. And as a, as a woman, it's just like, oh my God, my, my kids don't need me anymore. And they're trying to figure out who they are again, if they've put all of who they are into that child. I think to some extent, you know, I, I've generally treated raising my children from the point of view of I'm a mediator and facilitator of <laughs> part of their life journey. They've already got all sorts of power that I can never hope to fully appreciate or understand. And my job is to make space for them to be awesome and, mm -hmm. and absolutely to have them race ahead and be as much teachers to me as I am to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's that whole idea of um, the life cycle. We always learn from those ahead of us and those behind us. And that's the value of a multi-generational family, multi-generational workforce, you know, pick it. We are here, we're made for relationship and we need to appreciate each generation of those people that are in our lives. We tend to get impatient, I think, with mm -hmm. um, others around us. And it just makes no sense. I know that this isn't exactly on topic with like what we're talking about, but it's a morph out of the conversation of motherhood. It is. Yeah, it's all relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, uh, we already talked about your move from New York to California and you are also Canada. And so out of all of these places, has it changed your perspective on your work and your family and anything? Um, that's a great question. I, I, I mean, I guess I would have to say that it has, you know, in, in a number of different ways. Yeah, I mean, we emigrated, right? So we left Canada and came to the U.S. and we have been in the U.S. for, uh, next year it'll be 10 years, you know, which is a long time to live in another country, you know, especially in a country that's gone through a tremendous amount of political and social change. So I'm asked all the time, right, how it feels to be a Canadian in the US. Interestingly, I'm like really asked how it feels to be an immigrant, right? Because <laughs> like being super white, right? It doesn't get framed that way, but it does get framed often in the context, especially, you know, over the last four years of, why wouldn't we go back to Canada and you have healthcare and you know, all these things. And so I've, it's kind of been forced upon me to spend a lot of time reflecting on why are we here? Why do we choose to be here? And to some extent it has obviously been the work, right? But for pretty much the last five years, you know, I, I've been an entrepreneur and could have decided at any point to be based out of anywhere, but you know, we fell in love with the U.S., still love Canada very much. We loved New York. We especially love Southern California and Los Angeles. We love our community. We love our neighbors. We love the weather. You know, we love the outdoors. We love, love the American spirit of imagination and innovation. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely shamed, uh, shaped and framed who we are and, and how we live and who we are as a family. Were you ever an intern? Um, because obviously our show is all about internships. What was it like if you did intern? And have you ever worked with interns? Tell us what great piece of mentoring advice that you like to pass on. And then we're going to jump into predictions of the future. Awesome. 
I love to try to predict the future. Uh, I was never an intern in sort of in the in, in the business sense. I mean, I was a research assistant, you know, in university, that sort of thing. But I have worked with a lot of interns. I've had a lot of interns, and I've universally loved the experience. Um, at Babel pre Disney acquisition, it was internships, media internships, where you know were a funnel into into the company and uh, more than a few of our brightest and best team members started as interns in fact the two uh was so one of who became my one of my number two team members started as an intern and worked her way up as an intern at, through her just hustle and intelligence and talent and general amazingness, you know, used that as her, you know, as, as her funnel into a really interesting career. One of my favorite experiences at Disney, Disney has a really robust internship program and it, it was a really interesting experience because even though we were often very aware of the internship program and often executives would be invited to give talks to interns in the program and that sort of thing, it was the interns ordinarily weren't working directly with executives at the executive level. But I think I said in one of the talks that I gave to a, a group of interns that they should like feel totally free to reach out to me and ask any questions and I'd be happy to talk to them. and. Absolutely nobody did except for one young woman who totally took me up on it and emailed me and she said, you said we could reach out to you and that you'd be open to having a conversation and I want to take you up on it and I want to learn about you and I like how you get a career here and it was so awesome because it was she stood up and advocated for herself. She took advantage of an opportunity and I ended up spending a couple of hours with her one afternoon instead of talking through different pathways through companies like Disney and other companies. And she ended up being, you know, in contact and, you know, I wouldn't call it a mentorship relationship, but she was somebody who I supported for the duration um, of my career at Disney in no small part because she was one of the few interns that stood up and said, you know what, I am going to take you up on that offer. Right. You know, I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm not going to just take it as a throwaway line. I'm going to take you up on it. And I, I was so glad that she did. I personally learned a lot from that moment because it was one of those, you know, what Sheryl Sandberg framed as a lean in moment. I think of it as a sort of a stand up and use your voice moment that mm -hmm. I carried with me for a very, very long time. Rolling right along. The next episode is with Justin Spragans. What did that 14-year-old business entrepreneur look like? Yeah, he was different than this. But he, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. So, and this was in, you know, I'm, I'm much older than the normal kind of tech start, you know, college co-founder. But uh, uh, I guess when would have this been? Um, Mid-90s, I started my first business. And I don't know what, what, nobody like told me to be an entrepreneur. My parents weren't entrepreneurs, but for some reason I went to the library when I was early, you know, 12, 13, and I bought the dummy's guide to entrepreneurship, that yellow book. Um, yeah. and I read it like cover to cover 
And then that led me down this path of looking at like Millionaire Next Door and Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I started listening to like Zig Ziglar and well, Tony Robbins, but he's not quite business at the time. But I started a painting business because in Ohio on the summers, I needed to make money and I figured, you know, I would just do it myself. So I had rollerblades and I made flyers and I went around the like the ritzier neighborhoods in my town and I put them in the mailbox because their mailboxes were at the edge of the street. So I could rollerblade past and put the flyer in without really stopping my motion. So I was able to put a lot of flyers through that neighborhood quickly as opposed to going up to the door. Um, so I found that to be an effective way to mass market with the right, uh, the right houses. But I called my, I wanted to sound very professional. So I called the business premium painting and power washing. And I was 14 years old saying that I had a premium painting and power washing business. But I was very, I've always been very type A and I'm perfectionist. So I did an excellent job when I started booking these jobs. And primarily what I focused on was power washing and staining decks. And in Ohio, it's nice because the winter and the summers really abuse people's decks. So it's you get these repeat customers every two summers, they're ready to be power washed and stained again. So I fell into this, um, uh, I guess that fine because I was able to get, you know, re residual from one project. But ultimately that that started me in my business. But what I really love, and I still do this today with coding, design, building my apps. When I would work, I would listen to books on tape. I never would listen to music. I would only listen to books on tape. And now I can listen to podcasts, which is exciting. And of course, books on tape with Audible. But um, I would go to the library and I'd rent all the all the business books I could find on tape, and I'd have my you know CD player. My I would be my painting gear. My CD player was covered in paint by the end of the summer. But I would just listen to more business books on on tape, and um, that is what I did my entire high school. Um, I literally worked all the time. I went to school, got off work, or got off school, and then just went to work. And I saved like every single penny I could save. So before I graduated high school, I, I did have a, a really good nest egg saved. Um, and the next logical step was to go to business school because I thought that would be a nice uh, next, you know, kind of learn a little bit more about entrepreneurship, about business. So I went to Miami University, which is an amazing business school in Ohio. It's a beautiful campus. And I loved my freshman year. It was amazing. But my sophomore year... I take my first entrepreneurship class because the first freshman year was a lot of like the general general classes. But my sophomore year was my first where it was the entrepreneur class. And he told me in the class, he said, you know, this class is awesome to help you learn some, you know, skills to be an entrepreneur, but you really don't need college to be an entrepreneur. And the next day I dropped out of college. <laughs> and I just like, it was funny because he wrote me an email like a couple years later when he found out I was doing uh, tech and all this. And he's just like, you know what? No student has ever left after I told them that they didn't need college to be an entrepreneur. I was also leaning that way anyway, that I was um, going to do something different um, and not finish school. But after that class, it, it was the catalyst that I, I knew that I really didn't need to give um, college another three years to do exactly what I want to do in life. And I didn't know what that was yet. Um, clearly, I had no idea that mobile apps would come out and Apple would release 
um, this platform that empowered entrepreneurs and developers to create apps for them, which has literally been what I've been focused on for the last 10 years and love it. But I just knew I could figure it out because, you know, when you have that spirit in you, you just, you know, make things work. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that's my last, uh, bit at school. And from there I, I, uh, I moved to New York, which is a whole nother chapter, but, uh, definitely been always an entrepreneur since I, I can remember. Can, can Ohio still get premier paints and do you still know how to rollerblade? Good, good questions. I definitely can still paint. Not quite sure I could still rollerblade with age. You're, uh, you're less nimble. But um, uh, I love to paint, to be honest. I did it for so long at that time that like it's almost like meditative. The smell of paint, you know, like I, lo- I, was a- I loved cutting more than rolling. Like rolling is easy. You just, you know, it's quick. You finish the job. But cutting was my favorite because you had to have like, you know, really steady hi- hand and I never taped anything and I wasn't scared of heights. And when you paint stuff, a lot of times you're up on ladders. But yeah, I could still paint, but I don't do it anymore. I, I really have learned a lesson in my life that uh, I try to invest my time extremely wisely. So I, would, I wouldn't really take on many uh, painting. I would rather uh, bring in some great painter friends and, and do that. But uh, I try to, try to spend all my time building apps and really, with, of course, with family and stuff. But anytime that I have outside of family and friends, I, I really try to focus on uh, my craft, which is now uh, app development. Whatever it is that is like really I'm struggling with, if I go and paint, it takes all of that energy out of me. And then I'm just like, I'm peace. I'm at peace. I love it. That's amazing. Going back to the question, uh, you're currently working with Episode Inc. 8, Episode 8 Inc. Um, What does that company do and how did you come about getting there? I know we're probably taking a quantum leap from that 14-year-old guy to where you are now. And I'm sure there's an amazing story in between there. So if you want to take us down that path, you you can. And then we can end up at episode eight. So feel free. You can, yeah. you can drive. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. Because I actually think that's like the most important kind of message that I try to communicate to really friends and anyone, young entrepreneurs or young people with, with ideas is... Um, to just take the first step and to have courage that you can do it. And it takes, of course, a team and um, a ton of help to execute anything, but you could definitely start. So for me, I, when I left college, I fell into acting, which was something I never thought I would ever do in my life. I never grew up looking at actors or watching anything related to that. I wasn't in drama school. I wasn't in any of that. But my um, close friend in high school Um, got picked up by one of the top modeling agencies in New York. And he ended up becoming one of the biggest male supermodels of that time. So he was like, come out to New York, like, you know, hang out for the summer. So I did after I I left school that year. And it was just such an incredible experience. I'd never been to New York City. New York City was an awesome, you know, time for me at 18 years old to just live it up. and, And my friends were really doing cool stuff. So I was like, well, I, I really can't go back to just painting houses now. I'm kind of like, I got this bug. So I've, I started taking acting classes because they were, they were models and I'm not a model. So I was like, oh, well, I'll start taking acting because one of my buddies back then was uh, uh, Channing Tatum. He was um, at, with the same modeling agency. And he actually was the one who got me into acting because he started doing commercials because he was a successful model. 
and he started booking commercials. So I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll do that too. I could start getting commercials. So we actually got the same commercial agent, but I started taking classes and then I moved to LA because my commercial agent and talent agent then was like, you'll do way better in Los Angeles. So I had never been to LA, never thought about LA. I love palm trees and sunshine. So I was thinking one day I'd end up in Florida or something. Um, but after uh, my agent was like, moved to LA, I was like, cool, I'll do it. And I moved to LA. I had known a couple people here because New York and LA are, are very similar in their you know, community. So I felt comfortable enough to come out here at 19 years old, drove across the country and started pursuing that career. Um, it definitely, the entertainment business has a ton of entrepreneurial tendencies and pieces to it. Um, you have to handle rejection really well. You have to always put yourself out there. You have to um, package yourself like a business and, and try to try to find your fit. But a lot of it's out of your control because you're an actor and you're not painting the picture of the uh, of the content. So it wasn't exactly, I could tell it wasn't like a perfect fit, but along the way, I was at one of this agency, it's, named, it's called CAA, Creative Artists Agency, and it's one of the biggest agencies in LA, probably the top one, for a meeting one day, this was 2009, maybe 2010, and this little burger joint called The Stand was trying to get me to follow them on Twitter, check in on Foursquare, friend them on Facebook, subscribe to their YouTube channel on their little flyer when I wanted to order this burger. And I was like, all these social networks were brand new at the time. And it, it, this was my first app idea. I said, well, I don't want to go to all those places because I'm very much of a neat freak and I love things organized. So where's the one spot that I could go to that has access to whatever it is you want me to see? So I thought that we need to aggregate all these social media platforms into one site, one app. So I started designing the idea because I knew Photoshop a little bit. But I never, I wasn't a designer, didn't know how to code at the time, didn't know how to design, but I figured it out, wrote a business plan for this app that we called Crux, which ended up being a terrible name because it sounded like Crooks and we were trying to get people's passwords to sign in for a one-stop shop. So after pitching it, I learned I needed to change the name, but I um, was really blessed that the first person I told it to um, invested capital into the business and wanted to partner with me on it which was for an actor, incredible. Like the amount of no's you get before you book your first job as an actor is like a thousand or maybe more, um, where it was crazy to have an app idea. And the first person I told wanted to invest in it and wanted to help me raise more capital. So we did that, but um, the idea was definitely a good idea, but it is unrealistic to create because the social networks started limiting their access to their APIs. So we couldn't get the single sign-in data uh, funnel that we wanted to build. So, but along the way, I started meeting VCs. So I started, I put together a target list of all these venture capitalists that we would pitch this idea to and get cap, get a seed round for. So I started pitching VCs and built good relationships, but they did tell me that, you know, this app's not going to work because of the the restriction on the APIs. So, but they said, keep us, updated on other apps you build because you you definitely could build products because the app we built was was really nice and it was a well-made iPad app at the time. So I knew at that point I wasn't ever going back. Like I really loved the process of building that app and, and being in a startup and um, focused on um, this space. So I started another company. We built 
a number of apps with that company. This the most successful one was called Luxy. Um, we partnered with top Instagrammers and created photo filters for them. So instead of going to like Visco Cam, you could create like a photo, you could buy a photo filter from your favorite photographer on Instagram and the proceeds were split with the photographer. Um, and that app did really well, but I wanted to build something more social that was more like a photo editor. So I started brainstorming ideas on the audio space because I'm really big on communication. I think that life is so, um, it's meant to be focused on as building relationships with others. And there's no way to build a relationship with somebody else unless you talk to them. And I noticed with social media at the time, people were posting content and people were liking or commenting an emoji on it. And they felt that they were still connected to the person. But ultimately, con true connection comes from conversation. So I felt we need a social network that facilitates conversations with people and not just likes or retweets or um, watches, right? Views. Um, those are great for content and, and um, exposure, but I really wanted to build a network around conversation. So creating an app called Unmute, which was really funky of a concept. It was live streaming your phone call. So if I called it you, anyone could just listen to us. So it's almost like being agreeing to be phone tapped, which I thought could be pretty cool for podcasters. Because if you wanted to record a podcast, you could do it live and then people could tune in and they could uh, be unmuted. That was the concept. They could listen to your talk that was live and you could unmute whoever you want to talk to. And it, it could get recorded so you could post it afterwards. But what happened is when we launched it, it got featured by Apple as one of the, like, the best new apps um, that week. So it got some just exposure and teenagers started using the product as a way to make new friends, to meet each other. And that was super exciting. So that was my first experience with an app that really started um, generating some momentum. And it was really effective in raising venture capital money because I had built a lot of great relationships with uh, VCs over those few years that I was building those other apps. They saw that I kept building great products and I was um, had apps that were on top of this app store. And with this concept being audio social, being disruptive, where it's like live recordings where anyone could participate, it was definitely something that it was one of those like hot deals in Silicon Valley where like it was pretty crazy how fast you could close millions of dollars from VCs with a, with a direct hit like that. So we did that, but that comes with sometimes a good process or a good next phase and sometimes a terrible next phase, which unfortunately we were part of the, we weren't, a, we weren't able to get to the next level. So sometimes the signals of these apps are good, but they're actually not, you can't scale them because what makes Unmute really awesome is anything is live. So as you, uh, when you jump on a call, anyone could jump in. But what starts happening is, is because anyone could jump in, like there was bullying started going on. It was hard to filter out the type of content that you'd be more interested in discovering because it was all on the front page. So we weren't able to really get the um, momentum we needed to get to the series A with that. So from there, I've been building a number of apps. I built a few with Unmute, started another company, built a couple apps with that, but most recently circled back to the audio space because I just, after I've built all these apps over the years, I think I've had 15 or so apps on the app store that are all awesome. They're all great. They all could have 
succeeded or, or with the right timing or the right marketing. But I just looked at myself last year and just was like, you know, what, what app, if you only build one more, what would it be? And I just circled back to this idea that like, I really want to build something in this audio space. And I started seeing the AirPods are really becoming more the norm. People are leaving them in. Um, definitely the young, young demographic are adopting the AirPods while they're at school or even if they have a headphone in, they always have their headphones in. And I just don't see right now a social network around audio that, that is really interesting. And it's definitely a hard one to, to make work. Um, but there isn't really a social network around audio. There's audio platforms like, of course, the podcast platform or Spotify or Audible or pod, you know podcast. But um, when it comes to social, there really isn't something other than like a phone call. So we've been experimenting for the last number of months with an app called SUP which is uh, social podcasting, like bite size. So the podcasts are 12 minutes long. I call you, you uh, and I record for 12 minutes, and then I could add a cover and make, share it out everywhere. I could share it to uh, uh, Instagram stories. I could share it to TikTok. Um, it's a short podcast. Um, that's super fun, and it was going well, but the, one of the problems we were having was it's tough to book somebody for a podcast to record. So when you have a normal podcast, you have a producer or that's your job. So you're really working hard to do the bookings. But when you're dealing with social media platforms, you're talking about the normal person that really doesn't have a ton of time to like figure out who's available and schedule the person to record. And it was too hard to facilitate. And finally, to finish off this best of episode, we have an interview we did with Nick Rodriguez of the Nick Rodriguez podcast. This is one of my favorites. want to go back to the fact that your major was communications right that's yes. what you graduated with so how do you i mean obviously there's a connection between podcasting but what else are you taking from that degree into what you're doing now and does your day job include the communications i mean are you blending what what you get paid to do and your job with what you're doing here on podcasting how is that working for you yeah, so I, I I think for me communications was a was a perfect fit because I learned a lot of essential skills that could be used at any position, uh, public speaking, learning how to write, learning how to write an email, uh, you know, communications, learning how to communicate with people, uh, and learning how to write an email. I've learned more and more is very important, you know, in the business world, uh, you know, you know, with coworkers, with you know, with anybody, uh, even if you're just looking for a reference, it's important you know, to portray yourself in the right way. And I had great professors at the College of Charleston. So absolutely, I think it's been a great fit and it's really helped me along with my career. And as far as, you know, my current position, absolutely. And I think again, like it's just a, such a, what's one of those uh, degrees that you get that it can be so useful in just about anything. I could still get into teaching. Um, you know, I would need to get a certificate and anything like that, but the skills that I learned are very important public speaking like i mentioned and being able to express your thoughts and debate and everything like that is, is extremely useful i totally agree i have had a lot of students that are in communications come in and they think that just one path is is um typically social content creation and i think that's because that's how most businesses are getting their message out there 
right. that's obviously the biggest role that somebody can fulfill. But you raised some interesting points, public speaking, that leads right into podcasting, right? And then yeah. the ability to, you said something significant, email. And that was a conversation I had said earlier to um, everybody that's on the team here saying, okay, so remember to check your email three times a day because mostly, uh, you know, people don't think about that when you're in school, but the business world does use email. And it's going to be really important to develop that as a habit and not be surprised about that later. Right. so to speak, and go, oh, yeah, that's right, I'm supposed to. <laughs> yeah, and to be able to write an email that sounds um, intelligent is, and I don't mean like smart, I just mean like, you know, business professional. Right, you know, right. Know how you're to write. Right, you're not sending a text message. Um, and yeah. It depends on who you're emailing, you know, if it's someone that you're more friends with, you know, you don't have to be as neat and proper but you know if you're emailing someone about a potential job you know you want to make sure your your words are spelled correctly you know commas are in the right spot especially i mean one thing that you always hear about is spelling the person that you're addressing's name correctly uh that's a big one i mean nine times out of ten it's going to be in their actual email uh, or in the job listing or you know wherever it may be so even if it's a tricky name i think it's just good to double check and I've made those mistakes before. I'm not here to say I've never made those mistakes, but it's super important. And it's overlooked too. I agree, I agree. Um, okay, so little test. Let's just do a quiz here real quick. Uh, conversate, real world, real word or a, a uh, slang word? Conversate is a real word or slang word? Ooh. Is it, which one is it? What's your vote? I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say slang. I, I also agree, yeah, slang. It is slang. You are absolutely right. People use that word and I was an English major and I go, I, it is like all I can do to bite my tongue and go, that is not a real word. Stop saying it. <laughs> I'm guilty of that as well. I've, I've used, I've definitely used conversate before. Yeah, but you answered the question right. So That's good for you. That's all that, matters. that is, that is what matters. But I think that what you are saying is true because it's also like, who is your audience and how should you speak with them? Right, exactly. I listened to, Ian had recommended um, a show. It was, I think it was Ian. No, I think it was one of our other guests. Um, no, it was Ian. Um, Je uh, Jeff Gold Goldberg, right? No, Goldsmith. Uh, Jeff Goldblum. Bloom, yeah, Jeff yeah. Goldblum. I yeah. went and I listened to all of those shows. Those were amazing. Now, Nick has no idea what we're talking about. Why don't you go ahead <laughs> and educate? Because it was all about shoes. And I heard somebody on that show say conversate. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> they just said that word. But it's a really good show. Um, I, I don't know if it's a podcast, but it's definitely a show on Netflix. Yeah, uh, it's on uh, Disney Plus, And it's Disney like Plus. a documentary like episode. Have you seen it, Nick? I have not. No, I have not. No, um, and then I guess to tie it in, uh, this is just like last book. Uh, so if you're into sports and all that, are you also into shoes as well? Mm -hmm. Um, I can appreciate shoes, yeah. but I I'm not uh, gonna drop you know a lot of money on you know LeBrons or anything like that. Uh, but I can I can appreciate the hobby and the craft and everything like that. Yeah, I agree. Like I I I wouldn't go out of my way. Like I only wear Converse basically. Commerce is a cool shoe. Those are yeah. cool. Um, but I'm just, I was just tying that together since we were talking about the Jeff Goldblum episode about shoes. And then yeah. shoes definitely go well with 
sports, especially like basketball. Oh yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. there's. I mean, people buy tons of shoes. Like there's, yeah. like in the NBA, uh, there's a player named PJ Tucker who has, uh, you know, they're all staying in their own hotel rooms. I think he has a whole either closet or hotel room just of his shoes. So he's like a big shoe guy. So yeah, definitely NBA, uh, definitely big shoe people. But yeah, never been my big cup of tea, but I, I can, you know, I can appreciate the craft for sure. I want to say, uh, Ian, thanks for the, the connection, because that is honestly what I was going to go to was the fact that it was uh, sports and it was the shoes. And I went, oh, my God, that whole episode. I had no idea what big business sports athletic shoes are all about. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. The amount of money that went through there. Oh, it's a ton. It's a ton. Yeah, just sports in general. So the um, sport that I did when I was in high school was swimming. And I'm kind of interested to hear uh, what you talk about on your show because I haven't listened to it yet, I'm going to. And I wanted to know more about the sports. Do you do like one around the Olympics when, well, we would have had Olympics this year, but yeah, yeah, that's a bummer too. I think they still should have done them and just let, you know, pay-per-view. I think people would have paid for that for real. They would have spent the money to go there. They would have paid. Anyway, um, I was just really interested in the, the the different types of sports that you bring in on the shows because gymnastics was one that I always liked a lot. And then I was a swimmer when I was in high school. And then the other thing was, I don't know, did you guys have uh, wrestling teams in your schools? We did. Or, yeah. I so did. Yeah. I was a wrestlerette. Do you know what that is? I do not know. So when I was in high school, every one of the the teams uh, would have their own kind of a cheer squad, so to speak. So we weren't cheerleaders, but we were there to support. So I learned a lot about wrestling just because I had applied for that. And I learned, um, you know, we we would cut the oranges up for the guys, but we kept score. We helped promote it. We were selling tickets and, you know, it was a really big deal Um, in high school. It's a big deal. Right. But it, it was very interesting because I did not know anything about wrestling. You know, I was always thinking it's like Hulk Hogan kind of stuff. And it was not. <laughs> it was like, this is a real sport. And it made me yeah. see the connection of how it actually went to the Olympics, too. Yeah, yeah. Wrestling is, is very interesting. I don't know a lot about wrestling itself. It's not a sport that I, you know, usually focus on all that much as far as like a, a viewer. Uh, you know, my main sports that I that I watch are, you know, baseball, basketball and football. Um, and, and for the show, really, I mean, it's it's less about the actual sport and more about the person performing. Uh, so we've had probably mostly football and basketball athletes on the show, but we've also had people from administration. Um, you know, one of my friends, Jamal Walton, was on the show and he's not a current athlete anymore. Um, you know, he's more in the athletics department. So for me, I'm trying to set an example for kids who are either my age, you know, in their early early to mid 20s or in high school or in college uh, to see, you know, see all the examples of how all these people who are, you know, really successful, how they got to this point. So we have people in media also come on the show and, you know, talk about their career and, you know, how they got to a certain spot. And, you know, it's meant to help people uh, kind of determine where they can go. 
What about swimming and gymnastics though? Do you cover, what type of, other than just baseball, basketball, and what was the other one, soccer? No, you didn't say soccer. I haven't, no, I didn't say soccer, but I mean, it's, we're not, I mean, if we had the opportunity to have someone from gymnastics or swimming or, or soccer or anything like that, more than welcome to have that conversation. Uh, for me, I just want to make sure that person's a leader, you know, in their community, doing the right things on and off the field, uh, you know, is a role model. That, those are the kind of characteristics that we're looking for when it comes to a guest on our show. Got it. And how has it been with uh, the pandemic going on? That's an interesting question. Uh, so for the first couple of months, uh, you know, I was at a, you know, recording studio. Uh, and then, you know, I think at some point, I don't know if I'm there yet or not, but I recorded more episodes at my in-home studio uh, than I did, you know, before, you know, so it's just, it's just interesting. I think it's just being able to adapt. And I think in some ways, uh, it's been easier because some people, you know, some people were more available uh, at more times than they might have been had the pandemic not existed. Uh, but, you know, of course, you have your Wi-Fi issues that that come and go or, you know, things like that. But it's it's been a good experience. And I feel like the guests that, you know, I'm able to bring on have been have been great. And, um, you know, it's been it's been a great experience. And since you're limited to, you know, doing things through Zoom, have you like branched out to, you know, places that you never would have before? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think it lends you that opportunity uh, just because, you know, you, you can be a little bit more creative. Uh, recently, we started the Nick Rodriguez podcast roundtable uh, where we use more of the Zoom features where we get, I get three other people in the sports community and they come on and we, we talk about things going on that's important to them, um, you know, like voting and, you know, finding a job, you know, during the coronavirus, you know, everything like that. So we just recorded um, our second episode and it'll be a monthly thing that comes out every, you know, every third Wednesday. But I think absolutely, you know, I think in a time like this, uh, I think it's best to use your network as much as you can and, and try to be creative as possible. So you have the round table and then you have a separate podcast. You have two. It's all this. It's all the same. Uh, so my podcast, like the regular shows that come out are released every other week. And then the round table is still with the Nick Rodriguez podcast. It's just a monthly segment that we do. Uh, that's every third Wednesday. And it's more of a group of people. And we talk less about the individual's careers, but more about topical issues that are going on in our world. That's good. So it's like the view, but with men. <laughs> and we actually have men and women come on the show. I like to have a like a diverse group. So, you know, other than myself, I have another, you know, man in there. And then we have two women, uh, you know, various backgrounds and, you know, uh, just so they can speak to, you know, their experience and everything. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios.